This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. For the residents of Sacramento, California, the night of November 17th, 1896, started off like any other. Railway worker R.L. Lowry was hurrying home for the evening. He was regretting his choice of attire for the day. His overcoat was far too thin for the cold fall air, and he could barely keep his bowler hat on in the gusting wind. Lowry weaved between horse-drawn carriages as he made a mad dash for one of the new electric-powered streetcars that would carry him home. But just as he was about to hop on, a bright light appeared above the gleaming dome of the state capitol building. At first, Lowry thought it might be an exceptionally bright star, but then it started moving. The light drifted across the sky, slowly floating over the city's wood and brick storefronts. As it passed silently overhead, Lowry craned his neck up to get a good look at it. He couldn't be certain, but it looked like the light was attached to the underside of a massive cigar-shaped aircraft. When the ship dipped dangerously toward the rising spire of the nearby Roostaller Brewery, Lowry swore he could hear someone call out a command to increase elevation. He wondered who could be piloting such a magnificent craft. There was only one problem. These airships moved in ways that the current fleet of man-made inventions could only dream of. They were far too advanced for the time. If humans hadn't built the airship, then that meant it had to be the work of extraterrestrials. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Welcome to the first of two episodes on the 1896 and 1897 airship phenomenon. 
Beginning in November 1896, there were hundreds of reports of a mysterious cigar-like airship appearing over cities on the west coast of the United States. Gradually, the reports started spreading east until they abruptly ended in the late spring of 1897. To this day, nobody has come up with a definitive explanation for this short-lived phenomenon. In today's episode, we'll trace the progress of the airship's appearances during 1896 and 1897, and follow a 1970s investigation by journalist Bill Case into possible evidence that could prove the airship was extraterrestrial in origin. Next week, we'll conclude the story of Bill Case's investigation and examine the alternate theories that could explain the mysterious airship. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. On the morning of November 18, 1896, reports of a strange airship were plastered over the front pages of the Sacramento Bee and San Francisco Call. Hundreds of people witnessed the strange light as it silently floated over downtown Sacramento. Like R.L. Lowry, many of the witnesses reported that the light was attached to a large, cigar-shaped airship. But descriptions of how the ship was powered were incredibly varied. Some said it had large propellers and a rudder. Another witness said he saw two men powering the ship forward with bicycle-like contraptions. Yet another claimed it had massive paddle wheels like a riverboat. One reason for these divergent descriptions could be because the ship had flown over Sacramento at night. Additionally, with the glare from the light obscuring its finer details, it would have been very difficult to get a good look at what the ship really looked like. In order to get a better idea of its appearance, someone would have to see it in better light and from a clear angle. And later that day, that's precisely what happened. On the night of November 18th, Colonel H.G. Shaw was driving his horse-drawn buggy from the Central Valley, California town of Lodi back to his home in Stockton. Shaw shivered in the crisp fall air as the buggy bounced down the rough dirt road. He wanted to be home and in front of a fire as soon as possible. All of a sudden, Shaw's horse stopped in its tracks. He whipped the reins in frustration, but the horse wouldn't budge. Shaw groaned in frustration and hopped out of the buggy. If the horse was injured, Shaw was in bad shape. The hour was getting late and he was on a rarely used country road. There was little chance of any help arriving if he got stuck there. As Shaw passed his lantern over the horse, he breathed a sigh of relief. It didn't seem to have any injuries, but something had it spooked. Just then, an odd warbling sound pierced the air. The horse startled. Shaw stroked its head as he held his lantern out in an effort to see what had made the noise. What he saw made Shaw nearly drop the lantern. Three tall, slender figures stood at the edge of the lantern's light. When the figure stepped out of the shadows, Shaw froze in shock. 
they were definitely not human. The seven-foot-tall beings had bald heads with large, shining eyes and small ears and mouths. They wore no clothing. Below their necks, they were covered in what looked like silky hair from head to toe. Shaw called out and asked what they wanted. One of the beings replied in the same warbling call that he had heard earlier. Shaw contemplated running, but there would be nowhere for him to hide. The Central Valley's flat expanse stretched out for miles. He decided that the best course of action would be to stay completely still. Shaw didn't know what these beings were capable of. He didn't want to start a fight he couldn't win. Luckily, the beings didn't seem aggressive, but Shaw wasn't going to take any chances. He stood stone still as they examined him, the horse, and the buggy. Shaw tried not to flinch as the beings poked and prodded him with their long, slender fingers. He stared into their inquisitive eyes. Shaw could tell they possessed great intelligence. As the beings communicated with each other in their sing-song, warbling language, Shaw wished he could understand what they were saying. But they didn't seem overly agitated. He decided that if they were going to hurt him, they would have done it by now. Shaw slowly extended his hand to one of the beings in what he hoped was a universal form of greeting. He held the hand for what felt like an eternity as the being regarded it with curiosity. Finally, the being grasped Shaw's hand, but when they shook, Shaw lifted the being off of its feet. It barely weighed anything. The abrupt airlifting seemed to spook the beings. All of a sudden, they were all holding blindingly bright lanterns as though they materialized out of thin air. The powerful lanterns illuminated a massive 150-foot airship hovering in a nearby field. It was pointed at both ends with a large rudder sticking out from one of them. Shaw stared at the ship in wonder. The beings let out another warbling chorus before turning towards the ship and entering it in a single bounding leap. Shaw stood rooted to the ground as he watched the ship expand and contract before shooting off into the darkening night. The next morning, Shaw shared his story with the Stockton Evening Mail. His theory was that the beings were aliens from Mars, although he had no evidence to support it. He thought that perhaps they were searching for someone to abduct, but they had been too weak to capture him. Shaw's belief that the airship was an alien invention was understandable. No human technology came close to the capabilities the airship had demonstrated. But unlike Shaw, many people believed that a brilliant human inventor had created the airship. There was just one problem. Nobody had come forward to claim it as theirs. As the days went by without the pilot's identity being confirmed, people began to question whether the airship even existed at all. But a few days later, the doubters would be proved wrong in spectacular fashion. The evening of November 21st was a quiet one. Isaac Goff was taking a leisurely stroll down Sacramento's K Street on his way to Saturday dinner. It would be faster to take a streetcar, but he wasn't in any rush. As Isaac hopped over a wayward pile of horse manure, 
He idly wondered if he should stop at the Roostaller Brewery. It did offer a fantastic view of the state capitol building as the sun dipped below the horizon. While he debated whether it would be appropriate to show up to dinner slightly tipsy, Isaac's attention was drawn to a bright light moving towards him from the northwest. All thoughts of alcohol disappeared from his mind as he realized it was the airship that had caused such a sensation earlier in the week. Isaac sprinted down the street, shouting for people to come out and see the airship. Streetcar operators took up the call, spreading the word throughout the city. Thousands of people observed the airship as its bright light drifted over Sacramento for over a half hour. Many of them swore they could see the form of the cigar-shaped craft above the light, including the deputy sheriff and the district attorney. That same night, the airship appeared over San Francisco, mystifying the throngs of people who gathered to see it. The mysterious airship was the talk of the town. People were desperate to find out who could create such a magnificent craft. Parlor rooms were full of heated discussions over the pilot's identity. Some were convinced it was the work of a reclusive inventor. Others argued that it had come from outer space. As the debates carried on into the night, the residents of San Francisco got their answer. The late-night edition of the San Francisco Chronicle featured an interview with a lawyer named George D. Collins, who claimed to represent the airship's inventor. According to Collins, a man named Dr. E. H. Benjamin had built and designed the ship. He claimed Benjamin had constructed it at a secret location in Oroville, 60 miles north of Sacramento. The Collins article spread across the city like wildfire. His office was inundated with inquiries from people who wanted to speak with the enigmatic Dr. Benjamin. One eager Navy veteran even applied to be the ship's cabin boy. But the fervor was short-lived. The next morning, the Chronicle's headline read, It is a fake. According to the article, quote, The airship story is rapidly going to pieces. The man who made it has melted away, and those who saw it are lying low. Mr. George D. Collins now proclaims this marvelous story a plain, ordinary fake. But not everything about Collins' story was completely fake. Dr. E.H. Benjamin was indeed real, but he invented dental tools, not airships. He had no idea why Collins would put his name in the press in such a dishonest fashion. Whoever, or whatever, had built the airship seemed content to remain anonymous. Over the next several weeks, the airship was spotted all over the West Coast, from Seattle all the way down to San Diego, but nobody came forward to claim it as his or her invention. And it seemed like they never would. In mid-December, reports of the airship abruptly stopped. It was as if it had disappeared from the face of the earth. Maybe that's because it did. Perhaps Colonel H.G. Shaw's theory that the airship was piloted by Martians looking for humans to abduct was right, and the aliens had returned to Mars with their captives. But as it turned out, the airship's absence was only temporary. Only two months later, it would reappear over American skies, and this time, its presence would cause even more fireworks. Literally. Coming up. 
the airship makes its surprise reappearance. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. By the beginning of 1897, people had seemingly forgotten about the mysterious airship. As the new year came and went, the sensation the airship had caused in November and December felt like a distant memory. But then the airship reappeared, over 1,000 miles away from where it had last been spotted. Hastings, Nebraska was a small railroad town of just about 7,000 people. To them, the night of February 1st, 1897 was like any other, extremely cold and extremely uneventful. But one of those things was about to change. A few men, including the local beat reporter for the Omaha Bee, were huddled together in one of the taverns near the train station when a man bundled in furs burst through the door. He pulled off his scarf, putting his hands on his knees as he attempted to catch his breath. Wherever he had come from, it had been in a hurry. The men sitting at the bar shouted for him to close the door, but he ignored them. As the new arrival gasped for air, he told them in a quivering voice that there was something incredible outside that they needed to see. The man's eagerness piqued the beat reporter's curiosity. He threw back the rest of his whiskey and followed the man outside into the bitter cold. The reporter asked the man what all the fuss was about. He simply pointed to a bright light in the western sky. The reporter shook his head in disgust. Had he really just abandoned his spot by the fireplace just to look at an exceptionally bright star? But just as he was about to head back inside, the light started to move. Even though the reporter was a few drinks in, he was still sober enough to know that stars didn't move. Whatever he was seeing, he was certain it wasn't a natural phenomenon. The way the light moved reminded the reporter of descriptions he had read of an airship that had appeared all over California. Although he wasn't able to see its cigar-shaped balloon, the reporter believed he was seeing that same mysterious craft. As he watched the light move across the sky, the reporter felt a slight twinge of fear. He remembered an article theorizing that the airship was piloted by Martian aliens looking for someone to abduct. But if that was the airship's purpose, the people of Hastings were safe. The light never passed directly over the town and eventually sank down and disappeared over the horizon. However, the next people to encounter the airship would get a much better look at it. Three days later, on February 4, 1897, it would appear near the town of Invale, about 40 miles south of Hastings. Jed Wilkinson was sitting in his pew, absolutely mesmerized. Pastor George's sermon on the importance of temperance was especially relevant. Jed had read a report from Hastings that a mysterious airship was flying around town. 
he was sure it was nothing more than the hallucinations of a few drunken fools. Once the sermon was finished, the small congregation of about 10 people filed outside into the frigid night, discussing what the pastor had preached to them. The moon's soft light bathed the church's steeple in an ethereal glow. But as Jed looked to the sky, he realized the light wasn't coming from the moon. It was coming from a ship. Jed rubbed his eyes in disbelief as the airship passed directly overhead. It was so close that he could hear the faint conversations of whoever was aboard. He wondered who could be flying such a magnificent craft. To Jed, it seemed like the work of angels. He hoped the ship would land so he could meet whoever was responsible for such an amazing invention. But the airship stayed aloft, its bright light moving slowly across the sky until it vanished out of sight. Whoever was flying the ship didn't seem particularly interested in Jed and his fellow parishioners. If Colonel Shaw's abduction theory was correct, they had escaped a terrible fate. A report on the Invale sighting appeared in the next day's Omaha Bee. The airship's description was remarkably similar to the ship that had appeared in California, a long cigar-shaped balloon with a large rudder in the back. After the airship was spotted above Hastings, there were over 20 different airship sightings in the area over the course of just three weeks. But not everyone bought into the airship phenomenon. For every report that took the airship seriously, there was an article calling its existence into question. A common critique was that the airship only appeared at night and nobody ever saw it on the ground. But if the airship was powered by alien technology, perhaps it didn't even have to land. Although a few people came forward in the next few months to claim they had seen the airship on the ground and met its pilots, none of the reports were credible. As sightings began to spread out of Nebraska and across the Midwest, it seemed like the airship would never land. But eventually, it came down to Earth. Or more accurately, it crashed. On the morning of April 18, 1897, not much was happening in Aurora, Texas. Not much ever happened in Aurora, no matter the time of day. But 30 years earlier, it was a different story. Once a major stop on the Chisholm cattle driving trail, Aurora used to constantly buzz with activity. But the construction of the Union Pacific Railway and the subsequent popularization of the Texas Trail to the West had relegated Aurora into an economic afterthought. A population that had once numbered almost 3,000 people was now barely 300. But life carried on. For Cotton Buyer and part-time reporter S.E. Hayden, the day started early. Although a recent crop failure had put a lot of people out of business, a few farmers still lived in the surrounding countryside. By 6 a.m., Hayden was saddling his horse, ready for a full day of visiting remote farms and inspecting what meager crops they had to offer. A few other early risers were out and about as well, beginning their daily routines. But just as Hayden was about to swing himself onto his horse, he heard a low, rumbling sound coming from the south. As the rumbling got louder, a dark speck appeared in the sky. At first, Hayden thought it must be a distant bird. 
But as the object approached the town, it got bigger and bigger. As it came closer, Hayden could make out what looked like a long, cigar-shaped balloon. A dark plume of smoke flowed out behind it. Hayden realized it wasn't the balloon that was spewing smoke. It was coming from a carriage attached to the bottom of the balloon. Hayden could scarcely believe his eyes. He was certain that he was seeing the airship that had been all over the news the past few months. He was surprised that the airship was making an appearance during the daytime. Its reclusive pilot seemed to only fly the ship at night. But his sense of wonder was quickly replaced by a feeling of panic. The ship was losing altitude, and it was heading straight for the town. Hayden and the other people gathered in the street ran for cover as the airship passed overhead. It was so low that it almost scraped the top of his house, and Hayden instinctively ducked as he ran from its path. After flying over the public square, the airship collided with a windmill at the outskirts of town belonging to a local official named Judge Proctor. The debris was scattered over several acres. The windmill was completely destroyed. Luckily, Judge Proctor's house was intact. Hayden and a few concerned bystanders ran to the scene to see if anyone had survived the explosion. It didn't seem like anyone could have survived such a terrible crash. But as Hayden picked his way through the scattered debris, he saw what looked like a human form lying face down in the wreckage. Hayden sprinted over and flipped the body over. When he saw its face, he staggered back in shock. The other witnesses flocked to Hayden to see what had him so spooked. The gathered crowd silently stared down at the pilot's lifeless corpse for what seemed like hours. The pilot had been horribly maimed in the crash, but that's not what made the onlookers so disturbed. Even with all the wounds covering the pilot's body, something was abundantly clear. Whoever the pilot was, he or she wasn't human. Coming up, modern investigators examine the validity of the Aurora airship crash story. And now, back to the show. After witnessing the airship's fiery crash in Aurora, Texas, S.E. Hayden published an article about what he'd seen in the April 19, 1897 edition of the Dallas Morning News. Hayden wasn't the only one who believed the pilot was an alien. An astronomer named T.J. Weems had also witnessed the crash, and he seconded Hayden's extraterrestrial theory. Like Colonel H.G. Shaw, Weems also believed that the pilot was from Mars, although he didn't offer any reason why he thought so. Hayden claimed that he found papers on the pilot's body that were written in an indecipherable hieroglyphic language. He speculated that the documents were a record of the pilot's travels. Unfortunately, the wreck was so complete that it was impossible to learn anything about its construction or the technology behind it. However, Hayden said that metal fragments recovered from the scene were constructed with a metal alloy he didn't recognize. Hayden's article finished by saying there would be a funeral held for the pilot the next day. There was no follow-up piece to describe the event. Although Hayden's story seemed rather spectacular, perhaps he was telling the truth. 
shortly after his story on the crash in Aurora, reports of airship sightings began to dwindle. By the end of the summer of 1897, they had all but stopped. The airship phenomenon that had gripped California and the Midwest didn't seem to have any lasting impact. Perhaps this lack of continuing interest was due to the invention of the commercially viable Zeppelin in 1910. Whatever the reason, people of the time weren't overly preoccupied with getting to the bottom of the airship mystery. But all that changed almost 50 years later when the UFO craze erupted. In the 1960s, as people began to study UFOs more in depth, curious ufologists began to comb through old newspaper articles in search of any mention of UFOs prior to the beginning of the flying saucer craze in 1947. They were rewarded for their diligence when they uncovered the veritable treasure trove of articles about the airship from 1896 and 1897. Many UFO researchers suspected that the airship sightings could have been precursors to the UFOs they were currently observing. What interested these researchers the most were the descriptions of the airship's cigar-shaped balloon, which were strikingly similar to many of the UFOs being observed at the time. The Aurora airship story particularly stuck out for several reasons. First, it explicitly mentioned that the ship and its pilot were extraterrestrial in origin. Second, with so many people having reportedly seen it, there was a chance that there were still some people living in Aurora who remembered the event. Finally, Hayden's article mentioned people collecting the debris from the airship. If any of that debris had survived, it could be concrete proof that aliens really were visiting Earth. Ufologist Donald B. Hanlon wrote about the Aurora airship crash in the September-October 1966 edition of the British UFO magazine, Flying Saucer Review. Hanlon had suspicions that the article was a hoax. He found it suspicious that none of the debris that was supposedly collected from the crash had survived. However, Hanlon couldn't help but wonder if the story had any merit. If there was any chance, no matter how small, that a spaceship had really crashed in Aurora, it could legitimize the entire UFO community. With the help of his fellow ufologist Jacques Vallée, Hanlon decided to examine the Aurora story more thoroughly. They sent a colleague to Aurora to see what he could learn. Aurora seemed to have hardly changed since 1897. The population still hovered around 300 people, and the town seemed to exist mostly through sheer force of will. Upon arriving in town, the investigator headed to a small service station that was located where the airship had supposedly crashed. Unfortunately, the store's owner, a man named Brawley Oates, had no idea if the crash had really happened. He recommended that the investigator speak to a man named Oscar Lowry, who lived in the nearby town of Newark. Lowry proved to be much more knowledgeable than Oates had been. When the investigator arrived at his farm, Lowry invited him to take a seat on a hay bale. He had quite the story to tell. At the time of the crash in 1897, Lowry was 11 years old. Aurora was on the brink of collapse. 
most of the town's residents had left once the cattle driving economy disappeared and the population plummeted further after an outbreak of spotted fever. But S.E. Hayden refused to give up on the town. He believed Aurora could rebound. It just needed an injection of funds into the local economy. With the help of his friend T.J. Weems, Hayden devised a plan to get Aurora the much-needed publicity he thought it needed. According to Lowry, the airship crash story was a hoax that Hayden and Weems came up with to make Aurora more of a tourist destination. Apparently, Judge Proctor never even had a windmill for an airship to crash into. The UFO investigator thanked Lowry for his time. He believed that there was enough to Lowry's story that further investigation was merited. He headed to Aurora Cemetery to see if there was any sign of the alien pilot's burial. The graveyard was run by the Masonic Order, who kept meticulous records of all the burials in Aurora. There was no mention of a grave for a mysterious Martian pilot or any anonymous graves where it could have been buried. The investigator relayed his findings to Donald Hanlon and Jacques Vallée, who published their report in the January-February 1967 edition of Flying Saucer Review. Although they didn't call the Aurora story an outright hoax, they described it as a, quote, colorful new piece of Americana. But not everyone was satisfied with Hanlon and Vallée's conclusion. By nature, Ufologists tend to be a suspicious group, and others decided to investigate Aurora for themselves. In early 1973, an aviation writer for the Dallas Times-Herald named Bill Case heard about the Aurora airship story. He thought an investigation into the crash could make for a great series of articles and began to look into the story. The first story ran in March 1973, after reprinting the original Dallas Morning News story from 1897, Case went to Aurora to talk to Brawley Oates, the service station owner who had previously claimed he didn't know anything about the crash. But this time, Oates changed his tune. He acknowledged that he was extremely familiar with the airship story, even though he didn't necessarily believe it. But Oates contradicted the story Oscar Lowry had told back in 1967. Although he wasn't alive at the time of the crash, Oates insisted that Judge Proctor did have a windmill. In fact, he had helped to seal the well beneath it in 1945. Oates added that while sealing the old well, he had discovered fist-sized metal fragments. Unfortunately, he didn't think they were anything special and threw them away. Case's story was a hit. Sales for the Dallas Times-Herald shot up, and the articles were even reprinted across national media. In May 1973, a self-styled scientific treasure hunter named Frank Kelly contacted Case with some major news. Kelly claimed that he collected paranormal artifacts and that he discovered conclusive evidence that a spaceship had really crashed in Aurora. Kelly said he had found metal fragments in the area that looked different from any kind of metal he had seen before. Furthermore, he had scanned the graveyard with his metal detector and gotten unusual readings from one of the more remote grave sites. 
Kelly's theory was that the airship's pilot had been wearing some kind of metal suit when he died, which could explain how his body had come out of the crash intact. Case was skeptical. If the explosion from the crash had really been so intense that its debris had been scattered over several acres, it wouldn't matter how strong the pilot's suit was. But people were really responding to Case's articles. He figured he might as well see if Kelly's theory had any merit. The first step was to send the metal fragments Kelly had found to a lab at Texas State University for identification. As he waited for the results, Case was also able to unearth some witnesses who had been alive during the time of the crash, but who hadn't talked to any UFO investigators before. One of these witnesses was 96-year-old Mary Evans, who could clearly remember her parents telling her all about seeing the spaceman's body at the crash site. Next, two anonymous witnesses came forward and told Case they could take him to the alien's grave. Although they weren't alive at the time of the crash, they had gotten the information from a 90-year-old man who claimed to have seen the burial himself. Case met up with the two witnesses, and they brought him to a rough-hewn stone at the edges of Aurora's cemetery. The tombstone had no writing, but bore a crude carving of what looked like a cigar-shaped craft on it. There were three circles within it that looked like windows. Case was dubious of the carving's authenticity. While he admitted it could be genuine, it also could have just been a natural crack in the stone or a clever hoax by one of Aurora's residents. When Case got home that night, he saw that his answering machine was blinking red. The message was from a lab tech at Texas State University. He had gotten the results of the tests performed on the strange metals Case had sent. The tech hadn't been able to come to a decisive conclusion, but the metal was, quote, puzzling and unusual. Case was stunned. When he started his column, he expected it would be a fun UFO story that wouldn't lead anywhere significant. But now, he realized there was a chance that something strange really had happened in Aurora. With the aid of several UFO organizations, Case petitioned the Aurora Cemetery Association for permission to dig up the grave where the alien pilot was supposedly buried. If Case and the researchers helping his investigation were correct, whatever came out of that grave could change the world forever. But for now, all he could do was wait. Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. Next week, we'll discover just what was in the mysterious Aurora grave, and we'll discuss whether the airship really was extraterrestrial in origin or something else entirely. For more information on the mysterious airships, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Great Airship Mystery, a UFO of the 1890s by Daniel Cohen, Close Encounters of the Earliest Kind by Ron Giannini, and UFO Religion, Inside Flying Saucer Cults and Culture by Gregory L. Reese, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, 
The best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Extraterrestrial is written by Alex Benedin and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. <laughs>